According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me one last time in Proverbs 18. I think we're going to wrap up Proverbs 18 today. Got a couple of verses here that uh, practically preach themselves, really. Verses 23 and 24. Last week we looked at verse 22 and found that uh, marriage is good. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Went through those principles. Today we're ready for verses 23 and 24. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father's blessing upon our time of truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for this time together, asking, Father, for your blessing, that you would set aside distractions, that you would hedge us about and protect us, that you would keep our thinking clear, Father, both the the speaker and the hearers, that uh, you would be actively involved in the teaching process as the Word of God goes forth, combining spiritual with spiritual. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so in the process of this chapter, we've had nine main points, taking us through verse 22. Finding a wife is finding a good thing. Matzah isha, matzah tov. And uh, I just like saying that. The matzah tov almost sounds like mazel tov. So if you find a wife, matzah tov, you found a good thing. And uh, congratulations. For the man, aloneness is not good. Of all the things that were good, day one, day two, day three, actually day one, day two did not have a a goodness statement, but most of the days did. Day seven had a very good statement uh, at the end. But aloneness is not good in Genesis 2, 18 and 20. With rare exceptions, every ish needs an isha. If an ish doesn't have an isha, then something's missing. He's incomplete. He needs the helpmate in order to fulfill his mandate in, uh, in uh, imaging God. Finding a wife is the Lord's temporal life favor, even as finding Christ is the Lord's eternal life favor. And uh, just to put it in your remembrance, these two passages are parallel. Proverbs 18.22, where it says, uh, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. That word for word, that and obtains favor from the Lord, is repeated from uh, something very important that we studied back in Proverbs chapter 8. In Proverbs chapter 8, you'll notice verse 22. Not verse 22, verse 35. He who finds me finds life. So, if you find a wife, that's a good thing. But if you find Jesus, <laughs> that's life, right? That's eternal life. And, and they're both great. They're the two greatest blessings you'll ever have. Marriage is the greatest temporal life blessing. But of course, the Lord is the greatest eternal life blessing. And, and these are the two that are put in that tandem. So if you find a wife, you found a good thing and obtained favor from the Lord. If you find Jesus, you find life and obtain favor from the Lord. That second phrase where it says, and obtains favor from the Lord, is word for word identical in Proverbs 8.35 and in Proverbs 
22. And they're the only, the only two verses in the entire Hebrew Old Testament that uses that precise phrase, that uses those words in that way. So finding a wife is the Lord's temporal life favor, even as finding Christ is the Lord's eternal life favor. And I can't stress enough the gospel call that Proverbs 8 truly is, because it says, blessed, blessed, the, uh, the uh, even backing up to verse 32, now therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. This is the operating system we were talking about this morning. These are believers that are saved, that are, that are living in the word of God. Keeping my ways, it says. Heed instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. That's a gospel call right there. When you find the Lord, you find life. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. The issue between eternal life and, and, and eternity in the lake of fire is, is whether you accept Christ or you reject Christ. Those who accept Christ have eternal life. Those who reject Christ, well, they love death. God has prepared for them. If you think about it, hell, the lake of fire, is an abode suited to the fallen soul, suited to the, the uh, condemnation in Adam. And it's a, uh, really, it's a grace provision to provide an eternal destiny that's compatible with the lost estate of that fallen soul, that dead spirit. All right. A woman of excellence who can find? Well, the Lord can find, and the Lord provides. And so we dealt with that as well. Fathers start the work. In other words, an excellent daughter is a credit to the father that raised that girl and prepared her for her husband. But it's the husband then that will do the work of washing his wife with the word. Ephesians 5 talks about washing with the word and uh, the, the word wife washers in, or the wife word washers. I can't decide which way I like. The wife word washers or the word wife washers. In, in any respect, it's washing your wife with the word of God sanctifying your wife in the truth, whereby she is presented uh, spotless and blameless. All right, now this brings us then to point 10 in the outline. Chapter 18 closes with social life wisdom in the contrast of rich and poor. In fact, the chapter 19 will also open with similar uh, emphasis. But chapter 18 closes and chapter 19 opens with social life wisdom in the contrast of rich and poor, what I'm calling social life wisdom, how uh, we interact with one another. How do two people interact with one another in public in, in terms of social life wisdom? And what is the natural tendency uh, with a rich person and what is the natural tendency with a poor person? Or what is the natural tendency with somebody that is uh, more important or less important or higher on the social ladder or lower on the social ladder. When, uh, when two people interact in public, how does that dynamic work? And so we have it described here. The poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. <laughs> so there's a difference. The poor man and the rich man, they've got a different approach. They've got a different mindset and it's reflected in how they speak. It's reflected in how they communicate uh, one to another and, uh, and so forth. 
verse 24, a man of too many friends or a man of many friends or just simply a man of friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And uh, what powerful verses. Both of these actually communicate quite a bit. But social life wisdom in the contrast of rich and poor. So we start with speech patterns. Subpoint A, speech patterns. Speech patterns are dynamic, reflecting the relative social standings of the people speaking. Speech patterns are dynamic. And there's a difference. The poor man speaks one way, the rich man speaks another way. But the rich man, as he's answering roughly, well, sure, he's answering roughly because he, you know, he, he can afford it. He can afford to be ugly. He doesn't need anything from that poor man. In fact, he would just as soon have that poor man just get out of here, leave him alone, and never talk to him again. So go away. But when the shoe is on the other foot, that same rich man if he now comes face to face with somebody even more rich, well now, wait a minute, now it's different. Because now on a relative basis, he's now the poor man. Because now he's face to face with somebody more important than him. With more wealth, more contacts, more social standing, more influence, more power. Now, that guy's got to be careful about how, what he says and how he says it. He's going to be more diplomatic. He's going to be more politic, right? more political in, uh, in the things that he's saying and the things that he's doing. All right. So we have uh, dynamic speech patterns. And it's, it's curious. It's almost like the, uh, the premise behind My Fair Lady. You ever see My Fair Lady? Or read Pygmalion? All right. And Henry Higgins is convinced, and he's correct, that the moment you start speaking, everybody else will judge you and they will know where you fit in the culture, where you fit in society. Whether you are upper class or middle class or lower class, if you're, you know, Eliza Doolittle selling flowers and with dirt smudges on your face, um, just the way you talk is going to betray where you fit within the English culture of his day. And, and that was the whole premise, was that if he could teach her how to speak like the upper class speaks, if he could teach her, he could, he could pass her off as a princess, pass her off as anything. And everyone would fall for it based upon the way she speaks, based upon the way she interacts with, with everybody else. Anyway, that's the whole premise there. And I haven't seen the movie in years. I need to go watch it again and refresh my, refresh my memories. So, speech patterns. When we talk about the poor man now uttering supplications, the poor man has to be very careful about what he says and how he says it. He has to be very um, undeserving. He has to come across uh, uh, on, a, on a supplication basis without presenting any merit of his own because he knows he has none and the other people know he has none. If he, if, he, if he comes across as somebody that's entitled to something, well, that's just going to anger the, the people that he's dealing with because he's not entitled to anything. He's going to cry, cry out for grace because ultimately there's no merit involved. He deserves nothing. 
So the poor desperately cry for grace. The term for supplication here is a grace expression. It's a very unusual expression, though. And, and to me, it, uh, it stands out in a, in a uh, kind of a curious way in the ways that it's used. So the poor desperately cry for grace, or they cry for mercy, or they cry for unmerited provision. The Hanan in the Hebrew language is like the Chorus in the Greek language. And uh, we might expect Hanan, in fact, Strong's number 2603, but we don't have it here. We might expect Tehina, would be the much more common noun, cognate noun for Hanan is Tehina, number 8467. We don't have that one here either. In fact, this is a very unusual Tehanun, Tehanun. That N-U-N ending, the noon ending, is uh, this jumps out at you as saying, mm, that's different. What is that? Because it's used in, in an abstract, it's used as a, in, in the plural as an abstract, and it's uh, really, it's a, it's a begging for, uh, for grace and graciousness, but there's no merit in any of it. So it's a very unusual supplications, and it really... It is an abject inferior coming to a superior and just um, expecting, really expecting nothing because they don't deserve anything. And, and this is in the taunt of Job 41. This is what's used when, um, when God is rebuking Job and he's talking about the power in, of, of, of Leviathan. Let's look at Job 41 and See if some of this comes across. <clears throat> okay, here I'm got to make sure I have the right reference because the uh, the chapter division and the versification is different between the Hebrew verses and the English verses. But 41.3 is correct in the English versification. All right. Remember the context in Job. Remember that Job has exalted himself above God. Job has said God is unrighteous. God is unfair. And now in the rebuke, God just answers Job and says, really, you think you can go toe-to-toe with the creator God of the universe? You really think you're sovereign over me? You can't even handle Leviathan. And Levi- or behemoth, okay? He picks out behemoth and Leviathan as the examples that would just crush Job in a, in a heartbeat. And so if, if he can't stand face-to-face with behemoth, if he can't stand face-to-face with Leviathan, why does he think that he can stand face-to-face with, with the Lord? And that's the, the impact on this. So in Job 41, when he says, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Do you think the dragon is just some fish you can you can pull out of the water and and dangle around uh or press down his tongue with a cord you think you can just wrap a cord around his his snout and uh and tame leviathan think again uh can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook you think leviathan's a pet you can just lead him around you think you're the master let me tell you something, when you come, you're a human being, when you come face to face with Leviathan, you're doomed, okay? There is nothing on earth that's like him. 
That's how uh, the chapter ends in verse 33. Nothing on earth is like Him. One made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. All right, so we have Leviathan here. This is the uh, the, the material form of, of Satan himself. That Satan in the physical universe appears as a dragon. That is his shape, his manifestation. In verse 3, these questions continue. So the answer to all these is no. You can't draw him out with a fish hook. You can't press down his tongue with a cord. You can't put a rope in his nose. You can't pierce his jaw with a hook. Verse 3, will he make many supplications to you? The answer to that is also no. <laughs> will he speak to you soft words? As if, now this is that dynamic I'm talking about. Those supplications. Do you think Leviathan's going to come crawling to you as the unworthy party begging for your favor? Begging for your, you know, just, you know, Leviathan's not this pathetic puppy dog that's sitting there waiting for the table scraps that's just looking up to you and, and panting and drooling and just slobbering everywhere waiting for you to... And then when you toss him something just happy as anything that, that you, you threw something his way, okay? You know, if you think that's Leviathan, think again. Um, the idea there. Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as a bird? Will you bind him for your maidens? And, and this is just uh, over-the-top hyperbole here, but it's making the point. Making the point, because remember, the dragon is the one who said, I will be like the Most High God. And now Job is really kind of becoming an imitator of Satan when he criticizes God's justice, when he, Job himself, is, if you will, is saying, I am like the Most High God. I have a better standard of justice than God does. So there's a lot, uh, a lot to consider there in that sense. But this is a use of the same tachanun, okay? It's very unusual with that noon ending it's not the Hanan that we would expect. It's not the Tachana that we might expect. But it's this Tachanun that just shows this abject unworthiness um, as we have it there. Uh, jo- Jeremiah uses it in Jeremiah 3.21. And in the prophets, it really shows what it's going to take for Israel to repent and enter into the Millennial Kingdom. Jeremiah 3, context for this, uh, return, O faithless one. And uh, even though she was a faithless spouse and she played the harlot and he issued her a certificate of divorce, nevertheless, Israel has a future. Judah has a future. And um, they will have uh, a return. Verse uh, 21, a voice is heard on the bare heights, the weeping and the supplications of the sons of Israel because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you for you are the Lord our God. So this kind of supplication is so unique, it's so abject, it's so utterly worthless. It is like the pinnacle of worthlessness coming towards God uh, for the Jewish people to think that they may 
have a millennial kingdom. <laughs> that they may have uh, the Lord Himself restore them and bring in that kingdom. Jeremiah 31.9 in a similar context. With weeping they will come. And by supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of waters on a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel. Ephraim is my firstborn. And so here too, with a promise of the coming kingdom, a promise of of repentance and restoration, it requires that kind of abject supplication. They have to look upon Him whom they pierced. They have to call upon the Messiah that they crucified to be the Messiah to save them from the Antichrist, from the tribulational uh, destruction in order to be restored and to, uh, to enter into the millennial kingdom. Daniel chapter 9, this is the kind of supplication he was uttering. It shows you how desperate he was as a prophet to intercede for his nation. Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So Daniel was in Bible study and he's reading the prophet Jeremiah. And he finds out that this captivity is supposed to last 70 years. And now he is utterly dismayed because he has lived through all 70 years of this captivity. He was a young man when he was taken. He was a boy when he was taken. Now he's an old man in his 80s. And he's utterly dismayed because the the, the time should be complete, but his people are still horrible. They're still rejecting the Lord. They're still... Uh, not repentant. They're not humbled. They've learned nothing from the 70 years. In fact, in many cases, they're very wealthy, prosperous. They're doing well politically. They have no interest in even going back to Jerusalem. Why would they want to go back to that desolate place? They're, they're living it up here and doing great in, uh, in Babylon. So I gave my attention, verse 3 says, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and, and here's our term, Tachanun, prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And this is the uttermost kind of supplications. This is the just the abject, unworthy, um, kind of the, the, the pinnacle of unworthiness for these kind of supplications. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, <laughs> alas, we're doomed. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from Your commandments and Your ordinances. He's he's doing a confession here for His entire nation. Every Jewish person, and and, uh, Daniel is their intercessory confessor. And uh, even though for 70 years they still have not repented, they remain in darkness. 
Masthara, even to this day. They're not listening to the prophets. They're not ready to return. So he doesn't even know what the Lord is going to do. How can we return? How can we go back to Israel? You're just going to wipe us out again? That's the whole thrust on this prayer. Get down to verse 18. Uh, Let's see. Verse 17 says, So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications. There it is again. It's in verse 17 and it's in verse 18. We are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. (laughs) Because we have no merits of our own. We can't list one thing to our credit by which you would then respond and say, oh, well, you're entitled to something. or Oh, you deserve that. Or, oh, well, okay. I guess you've you've earned or deserved uh, being restored to Jerusalem. There is nothing that they can claim. No credit of their own. By the way, this is a pattern for our own prayers. Do you go to the Father in prayer and ask for something based on what you think you've deserved? That's that's not a grace prayer life, let me tell you. (laughs) Because we're saved by grace. We walk by grace. I go to God and I'm asking for His grace. I'm not asking for what I've earned or deserved because I know what I've earned or deserved. I'm asking for His grace because He loves pouring forth His grace. So not on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. Then Gabriel arrives and he says, um, and it's curious, in verse 23 he says, at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued and I have come to tell you. At the beginning of your tachanun, your supplications. And so, again, there's, there's lots of words for supplication, uh, different Hebrew expressions. Hanan uh, and, and Tachana would be much more common in the tandem of prayers and supplications. That's well known. It even crosses into the New Testament. We have prayers and supplications with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. So we have uh, New Testament expressions as well. But uh, here in the, in the Hebrew, this, is, this uses the very unusual Tachanun that just, I think, is a, is a pinnacle. I think it's a, it is a superlative of all the kinds of supplications that could ever be made. Lastly, Zechariah 12. Zechariah gets ignored a lot. That's unfortunate because I think the uh, prophecies of Zechariah are just as profound as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, any of these that relate to the coming messianic kingdom of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 12. And... uh, I mean, if you think there's, uh, <laughs> if you think he's an inferior prophet in any way, just I mean, read these chapters. You get seventy pieces of silver here. You get, you get these wages. You get the the shepherd that's cut down. You get the, yeah. There's your thirty shekels of silver in eleven thirteen, and and uh, you get into chapter twelve, and now you've got a promise of restoration. And uh, even though the nations are surrounding Jerusalem and they're going to go through tribulation, it's going to seem like they're right there on the verge of, of extinction. 
he's got them right where he wants them. <laughs> the Lord says, um, in that day, verse, uh, what do I want to read here? I don't want to read the whole chapter. Um, verse 8 says, Um, yeah, in that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. How about that? The one who is feeble. You get somebody that's, uh, you know, uh, crippled or disabled. They got, they've got an ADA parking permit. And uh, on that day, boom, they're like David. They're like a mighty warrior. They're going to jump up and, uh, and do battle. And the house of David will be like God like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So when you have all the armies of the earth surrounding them, God's got them right where He wants them <laughs> so that they can rise up and, and destroy their enemies. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Notice what He's going to pour out. The spirit of grace and the spirit of tachanun, the uttermost unworthy supplications imaginable so that they will look upon me whom they have pierced <laughs> and they will see the messiah they crucified in his first advent and they will cry in an unmerited the pinnacle of worthlessness saying please help they will look upon me whom they have pierced they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only begotten son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. They will process the doctrine and understand that God gave His firstborn Son, that the firstborn of all creation died for them and they crucified Him. And they will call upon Him to, to be their Messiah, to save them, to bring them into the kingdom. And in that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadradurman in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn. Every family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself. Their wives by themselves. And it just describes this systematic corporate mourning. Family by family. As they mourn over the Messiah that's saving them as the Messiah they crucified in His first advent. Alright, so this is how the poor speak. How do, the, how do the rich speak? <laughs> the rich answers roughly. The rich answers roughly. So the poor, in Proverbs 18.23, they have an abject sense of unworthiness. They have an abject sense when they're crying out that the person they're speaking to is better than them, more important than them, uh, has uh, the the uh, capacity to help them even though they don't deserve it. The rich, on the other hand, their response is such that it's harsh. It's rough. It's crushing. It's to the point, it's not for edification, it's for destruction. It is a rough answer to make it stop. Make them go away, quit bothering me. That's the rough answer. And it's, uh, it's curious because they both reflect an attitude. The poor has the attitude of, I don't deserve anything. The rich has the attitude of, you don't deserve anything. <laughs> okay? The rich has the attitude of, I'm better than you. 
go away. Now, it's, it's like the, the, the tax collector and the, and the Pharisee going into the temple to pray, is it not? I mean, they're, they're, the, it's the, the tax collector that's oriented to the grace of God that says, be merciful to me, Lord, the sinner. While the Pharisee is so full of himself that he's better than other people. All right, we've got some good answers. We've got some good illustrations of this principle. Not necessarily identical vocabulary, but they're good illustrations of the rough answer for the rich. Genesis 42. Remember, there was a famine in the land, and uh, Jacob sent his sons down to uh, Egypt to buy bread because they heard that Egypt had a stockpile of bread. And so the boys show up to buy bread, and lo and behold, unbeknownst to them, it's their brother who's in charge of giving out that bread. Joseph was ruler over the land. He was one, the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but, they, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. This is our principle from Proverbs 18.23. He said to them, where have you come from? And they said, uh, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. And so this rough answer, this harsh answer, designed to, uh, to communicate the fact that these guys are just Hebrew beggars that want bread, and he is this powerful Egyptian lord, and why would he bother saving their life? He doesn't care about them. And you see, so, and no, it, truly, it's not Joseph's real attitude, but he's playing it up well, okay? He's playing it up like they would expect In fact, when they go back and tell Jacob this story down in verse 30, uh, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. So this is when they're, they're telling that story back to their father when they come back and report back to, uh, to Jacob. All right. So the harsh, the rough answer. This is, it's the language of someone that's just scornful and dismissive and, and has no time for the supplicant. No time for the, the person that's beneath them. Exodus chapter 5, another example. These aren't pleasant stories to read, but... Um, they're useful because, I mean, it's the way of the world. It's the way the world works. You're dealing with an unbeliever. You're dealing with a carnal believer. You might expect this. They'll treat you this way sometime. So uh, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Besides, I will not let Israel go. So here's a harsh answer. Here's an illustration, an example of what Proverbs 18.23 is talking about. It is harsh. It is destructive. It is dismissive. It is the pride of someone that's better than the one he's talking to who uh, is uh, just dismissing any request they make. Have no time to even listen to it. Why bother even thinking about it? The answer is no. 
And that's the rough answer. Third example is uh, Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. This is uh, where David meets Abigail. And, but before that, the rough answer that's given. David sent ten young men to, uh, and with a grace message for Nabal. <coughs> and, uh, you know, an opportunity for Nabal to bless David, an opportunity for Nabal to provide a blessing to his men because of the... Uh, the opportunity is there. It's a festive day. And uh, verse 9, when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. And then they waited. And boy, the answer was not what they expected. It was a harsh answer. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Who does he think he is? Does he not know who I am? You can just, it's, it's the... It's the rough answer that it reflects the arrogance, the pride, the dismissive scorn. And who is the son of Jesse? <laughs> so he knows who David is. He knows the lineage. He knows the background. He is utterly contemptuous of uh, Jesse the, uh, Ephraim, uh, the Ephrathite. What, what kind of clan? They, uh, too small to be counted among the clans of Judah. This obscure little segment of... Uh, of nobody. There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. In other words, it's a time of lawlessness and you're just another bandit king. You're just another bandit prince. Shall I then take my bread and my water and meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? In other words, you shady ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> he just called them a bunch of bastards says, I don't know your background. I don't know your parentage. I don't know your... This is very uh, harsh, very rough. So David's young men retraced their way and went back. They came and told him according to all these words. And they were fighting words. And David responds as you might expect. When the world dishes it out, the world wants to, to fight right back. He's very carnal at this point. When he tells his men, all right, each of you gird on a sword. <laughs> It's, it's time to, time to show, give him the whatnot. You know, that's, he's going to go murder the whole household. And thankfully, Abigail saved him. Ab Abigail stepped in with grace and discernment and wisdom and, and, uh, and saved David's life that day. So with Pharaoh, with um, Joseph, with, with, uh, with uh, Nabal, we've got plenty of examples here. This is, this is the rough answer of uh, of the wicked the rough answer of the rich who are full of themselves full of their own self-importance that are utterly contemptuous of the poor and um you know sad to say it's uh it's not unusual at all okay if you live very long in the world you realize uh, this is largely how the world operates this is largely how the fallen world thinks that uh, what have you done for me lately? Uh, what can you do for me now? And, and if you can't do anything for me now, why should I do anything for you? You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But, you know, if, if I can't get anything from you, I don't need you. And uh, the, the whole premise of this is, is, uh, is just horrible. 
Such may be the way of the fallen world, but the body of Christ has different standards. James 2, verses 2 and 3. Such may be the way of the fallen world, but the body of Christ has different standards. James 2, verses 2 and 3. You know, and and honestly, Israel in the Old Testament was also supposed to be very gracious towards one another. They were supposed to be... um, uh, because they were supposed to look at one another and in, uh, in, in think about themselves that they once were slaves, that uh, they shouldn't be abusive to their slaves, they should treat one another with grace and with mercy. Alright, Hebrews, James. But in the body of Christ, it's so much more than Israel under law I think Israel under law was expected to be merciful. The church under grace is expected to be far greater than anything. I mean, we're supposed to be gracious uh, even as God is gracious. So James chapter 2, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. That's just antithetical to grace. If you think you're a disciple, then live the way Christ lived. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. So you have two visitors in your church on a Sunday morning, and one of them arrived in a Mercedes Benz, and he's, uh, he's decked out in this fine clothing, and, and then this other, uh, maybe a homeless guy, walked in off the streets in rags. So we've got uh, the full spectrum here. I mean, this is the language of extreme to, to make the point. Okay, you got two people, both visitors on the same day. And you pay special attention to the one who was wearing the fine clothes. <laughs> right? That's, that's where the welcome com- committee uh, throws out the, the red carpet and, and fawns all over them and guides them around and introduces them to the pastor and shows them the, you know, and... and all this, all this nice stuff. You sit in here in a good place. You say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool or you just treat him like dirt. Really, you'd rather they not come and, and mess your, your, your Christian floor, right? I mean, just go away. That's the favoritism. And this is the maladjustment to the grace of God. Because all of us are the poor beggars in God's sight. I mean, all of us are the undeserving beggars that are saved by grace through faith. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Of course. It's exactly what it is. So, uh, listen, my beloved brethren. Do not, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? Did Jesus not say, blessed are the poor? Did, you know, Paul had doctrine related to this. Although it's, I think James was written before most of Paul's epistles. Um, it says in verse 6, you have dishonored the poor man. Now that statement right there tells you everything you need to know. You have dishonored the poor man. Human viewpoint, human wisdom says, well, why would I honor him anyway? Why would I honor the poor man? Is he worthy of honor? 
Well, are we, are we not gracious? Are we, do we not give honor to whom honor is due? And ultimately, it's the Lord that deserves it. When we honor the least among you, we're honoring the Lord. So you have dishonored the poor man. Is, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? That's kind of a telling statement right there. What did the poor guy ever do to you? But the, a lot of times, the, the rich and the powerful, they've done great damage. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then uh, there you go. Don't show partiality. Don't transgress. So this is the, uh, the issue here. So we have speech patterns. Verse 23 talks about the speech patterns of the rich and the poor. Verse 24 talks about the friends we make. Subpoint B, many casual friends are a pending wreckage. But one neighbor-loving friend is closer than even a brother. Proverbs 18.24 Many casual friends. A man of friends. That's a pending wreckage waiting to happen. (laughs) Um, They put the words in here, too many. A man of too many friends. Um, I guess that's fine. I don't know. The 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 helping words that are italicized there, the too many. um, I don't think they're technically necessary, but the principle is there. Um, If you're a man of friends... That's what you're known for. It's like man of sorrows. What what do you characterize by? Man of destruction. Man of whatever. So man of scrabble. I mean, whatever you're known by. Whatever your reputation is. So the man of friends. This is the this is the person that's just the 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 social magnet. He's the he's the one that just. I mean, he's got acquaintances everywhere. Friends are flocking all around him. He's got, and he probably does have too many, right? Because he's got hordes. He's got an entourage. He's got a retinue, okay? And a retinue, that's a fun word from last week. Uh, a, a retinue is, uh, he's got just friends everywhere. And it is too many. Because are they truly, really friends? If you've got a thousand friends, how many do you really have? Do you have one that sticks closer than a brother? Do you have the true friend that loves because, I mean, friendship takes work. If it's a real friendship, it takes work. It takes time. It takes intimacy. It takes dedication. That's what the love part speaks about. We talk about the ahav, the love that happens here. And really, the, ver- the word in verse 24 for friend is not even the word friend. You've got the word friend in, verse 20, in, in the A part. The word in the B part is a different word. It's, it's, it's not a, a word for friend, it's a word for lover. And uh, so that's going to take, we've got to tear that apart. I'm not sure, can we do this in 10 minutes? Probably not, because there's, there's a Messiah promise in here too. Because um, Jesus is the friend that sticketh closer than a brother, and uh, the one who came and identified with us. <clears throat> but the idea of, uh, of friends and and. Uh, the neighbor-loving friend. This is the one that loves the Lord God and loves his neighbor as himself. This is the believer that's oriented to the Word of God. And so because he loves the Lord God, 
he'll, uh, he'll rebuke you when necessary. Because he loves you, he'll rebuke you when necessary. That's better than these casual friends that chit-chat and talk about the weather and, and uh, discuss the longhorns or sports or politics or, or whatever else. The casual acquaintances that don't love, they don't love the Lord God and they don't love you, that's a train wreck waiting to happen. Because all it takes is one offense. one You're walking on eggshells. All it takes is one misunderstanding, one awkward day. And they turn on you like you were never friends at all. You were the worst enemy ever. And that's the destruction, the ruin that, uh, that the A part of verse 24 is speaking about there. That's just a train wreck waiting to happen. It's a, or I put it on the slide, a pending wreckage. But one neighbor-loving friend, one lover, one lover, so, let's see here. Yeah, the man of friends, the Ish-Ra'im, the man of friends, will discover the shallowness of being a friend to everyone. It's actually a snare. It's a, there's a, um, an attitude, I think uh, the, the carnal mind loves it. Part of the sin nature loves having a lot of friends. I think the sin nature, that's why Facebook is so popular. I mean, you can, you can accumulate more friends than you really can in real life. You can, you can have thousands and, 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 uh, on your friends list. And, uh, and then the more likes, when people click like and click like, ooh, I only got 10 likes on that post. Ooh, I got 20 likes on this post. Let's do more like that. Oh, I got 50 likes on this post. Let's do more like that. And it, it just feeds an ego. It feeds a, 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 a fallen human sense. And, and, and then there's, there's um, certain personalities that just, they don't want to rock any boats. They want to be friends with everybody. They, they, want to, they want everybody to like them. And it's really, really important that everybody likes them. And if somebody doesn't like them, it, it's heartbreaking. Oh, why don't you like me? <laughs> and uh, man, you become a slave to to, a, to a, a way of life that just is, keeps pursuing. And it's exhausting. Absolutely exhausting. So a man of friends. When this concept comes back in the early part of chapter 19, I think it spells it out very bluntly. Uh, wealth adds many friends. <laughs> so you want to know why you're so popular? Because, you know, because you're loaded and, and you're generous and, and the money's flowing and you know, but once that spigot stops, how popular do you think? Are you going to stay popular? When the gravy train ends, uh, you think they're going to stay on board? Or no, they're hopping onto the next train. They're done with you. As it says, wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friends. Yeah, no time for you. Verse 6, many will seek the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're handing something out right now? Oh, hey, buddy. <laughs> you know, that's, again, that's the way this world works. That's the, that's the cosmos operation of this fallen world. So, uh, yeah, the, the man of friends is very soon going to discover the shallowness of being a friend to everyone. But the ohave, the lover, the ohave. And, and we probably should just 
not try to translate it. Because the verb ahav is a verb of love. And here's a participle, the lover. The ohave, lover. The problem is if I say lover, then we immediately go to some sexual thing. Okay, it's, This is ahav. This is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is loving your neighbor as yourself. This is a believer that's oriented to the love mandate of the, of the Torah. The one who loves. The one who loves. The ohave is not just a friend. He is a friend who loves God and loves his neighbor. And, and he's, he'll be there. He'll stick with you. He sticks closer than a brother. He, there is a bond between you. Think about the bond between um, the bond between Caleb and uh, Joshua. The bond between David and Jonathan. The love between... I mean, there's a bond between doctrinally oriented, mature believers. All right, well, we'll pick this up next week because I don't want to, I know I'm rushing it here. So do you want the casual friends? Do you want to be oriented to the Word of God and have the, the true friend? And even if you don't have one, I suspect we do. This is a flock that's as good for that and, or other flocks. I suspect that, if, that, that you have a dear brother, a dear sister, that there's somebody and you can pray with them, you can talk doctrine with them, you can be oriented to Christ with them. And uh, because, uh, because you're walking in the light, they're walking in the light, you have fellowship with, with one another. That's how it works. But it takes doctrine to produce this. We'll, uh, we'll illustrate this more um, next week. Cause I, wanna, I don't want to just rush through it and say, okay, we'll jump into chapter 19 next week. I want to do one more. Did I say this was our last time in chapter 18? I did, didn't I? Ooh. Well, you know that your pastor is neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I can be incorrect on a human prediction. All right, so we'll, uh, we'll wrap this up next week, and then we'll, we'll jump into chapter 19 and take it from there. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the blessings we have to study to show ourselves approved. And I pray that uh, we are oriented in, by your wisdom to the per- proper perspective of our finances, the proper perspective of our dealings with other people in, uh, in, in public, in, in culture, in society, that we don't, uh, we don't approach people based upon our social standing compared to their social standing. We don't um, manipulate things based upon earthly considerations. Father, we just... Speak the truth in love. And, uh, and I pray that we might be reflections of your will in this regard. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.